right, we're in First John chapter 2. So, Lord, we love you. We trust you. We bring you our hearts of adoration and joy and thankfulness. We say you alone are worthy, glorious in all your ways. Lord, would you help us to submit to your word, to live faithful to your word? It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. I told you before that I think that Martin Lloyd-Jones is the greatest preacher of the last 100 years or so. He's the greatest preacher you can get on recording. So you should just throw away all other preachers that you're listening to and your podcasts and get on Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was born in 1890s and died in 1981. And there's something about a Welsh accent that really communicates the word of God better than an American one. Um, But it's rare that a man is gifted... um, intellectually and gifted in oratory skills. Like even the apostle Paul, who is without a doubt, like the greatest philosopher thinker of his day. Many people, when they heard him preach, he tells us, they say that he's weak in his words, but Apollos on the other hand was a man with great um, unction, ability to communicate, to persuade. Um, But it's clear that Apollos didn't have the, the scholarly mind that Paul had as well. Um, Lloyd Jones is one of the rare people that can think and persuade and communicate. He's, he's wonderful. I, I want to talk to us for a minute about, um, what Lloyd Jones called, um, either putting too much or too little in the content of saving faith. Um, we believe that we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, right? That's the Protestant confession. Faith alone, Grace alone, in Christ alone, sola fide, that's the Latin for only faith. Um, if we rise to that confession, which we do, obviously, that no one is, is saved by works of the law or effort or your ethnicity or uh, your socioeconomic class, but that grace is granted on the basis of faith, that it's necessary that to then define what do we mean by faith? Um, what is saving faith? If faith is the the means by which we receive the grace, the washing, the cleansing, what is it? Because if we have a wrong definition of what that faith is, then we may find ourselves confessing to have faith while not actually possessing it. Um, and so Lloyd-Jones articulated two errors. I know this is a bit heady for a second, but it really, really matters that we want to think through. He said the first error is putting too much into the content of saving faith. So some people will say faith is obedience to the law or in in honesty, there's a bit of this in Catholicism that it's not by faith alone. It's by faith and the sacraments. It's by faith and uh, praying the rosary and and faith and participating in certain rituals. And so the idea that that saving faith needs more leads to works based um, salvation. Does that make sense what I'm saying? This is what. Um, forgive me for being a little bit straight to the punch here, but this is what Mormonism teaches, that, that it's faith and being a really good neighbor. People always say Mormons are the best neighbors you've ever had. Yeah, for good reason, because they think they're going to hell if they're not, okay? Um, that's, just, that's just good truth there. Um, the, when you put too much into saving faith, you end up with works-based salvation, or I've got to do more, do more, do more, And that produces a guilt-ridden life that is not the freedom and liberty and joy that is supposed to be produced by 
by, by grace being granted to us, not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of Christ's performance. That understood putting too much into saving faith leads to works-based uh, religion. The error that I think we are wrestling with in our day is what you would, what Lord Jones described as putting too little into saving faith. Putting too little into saving faith would lead to what I would call easy believism. Um, and, um, uh, Lord Jones was really working from Romans 10 through 9. Uh, I'm, as I was thinking about this, this is one of the last, um, like, do you guys remember, um, sorry if you're new with us, uh, Don Forshee, who was kind of like our, our elder passionate, gosh, he was so passionate. I guess he passed two years ago now. Um, but this is one of the last doctrinal conversations I had with him. He always wanted to talk doctrine and he was opinionated about his doctrine. Um, but we, this is one of the things that he and I agreed on so much. Um, Romans 10, 9 through 10, modern evangelical, um, in the West, we've been taught Romans 10, 9 through 10. You could repeat after me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like we've heard that verse over and over again. Confess with your mouth, believe with your heart, and you'll be saved. And modern evangelicalism taught us that verse, but they never took the time to explain what that verse means. Okay, and so easy believism became, repeat after me, and you're saved. If you believe that the historical event of the resurrection took place, then you're saved. And we've tried to really... Um, rush people down the road of repeating after me to try to, in honesty, if we're going to be a little straightforward, oftentimes just for the sake of numbers, just for the sake of looking successful. Um, but man, people's souls are in the balance. And so, we, right? Like, I don't, I don't want us to put too little into the idea of saving faith just so we can get more people to raise their hands and then people to leave here going, I know him, only to hear Jesus on the last day say, away from me, I never knew you. And, and so saving, what is saving faith that really matters? So when he says, if someone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, this means something. Okay. This does not mean, I, and forgive me. I mean, there were so many in the West that did this. There's a couple of evangelists in my head. I want to pick on real quick, but I'm not going to today. Um, this does not mean if you repeat after me, then you're saved. Confession, biblically speaking, is to profess a doctrine. Confession is not just to repeat after me, but it's to, to, to confess a real conviction, a belief to be confessional. We talk about churches being confessional. That means they have a set of doctrines that they teach their children and believe with all their hearts. Confession is not repeat after me. It's not in the, in the words of, of some, it, it's not an incantation. It's not a spell. It's, it's to confess that Jesus is Lord is to believe with with all of you to have conviction to live your life on the basis of, of this truth. Jesus is Lord. Okay. Jesus is Lord in a Greco Roman world also meant something. Um, so starting like a hundred years before the life of Christ, the, the emperors, the Caesars demanded that, that people in Rome say Caesar is Lord. And by saying Caesar is Lord, what they were asking was that all Romans confess that, that this Caesar is the ultimate authority. Um, Domitian in 85, for instance, uh, he demanded to be called Lord and God. So Domitian in, in 85 AD, that's about the time the book of First John is written. So Domitian in the same time period, uh, literally scholars say 85 to 90, 
John wrote First John. Um, we have Domitian saying, everyone has to call me Lord and God. So uh, the, the term Lord, it, it meant master, ruler, authority. And um, Christians literally, guys, just give us historical context here. There were so many Christians who went to the lions, who were thrown uh, into, into, into the fire because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. They said Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. They literally, I mean, I can't, I can't over-exaggerate. The, the, the deaths that took place because early Christians refused to say Caesar is Lord. They could not just utter with their mouths that Caesar was the ultimate authority and master and, and had dominion over Rome. They said, no, Jesus is. Kill me. I don't care. Jesus is Lord. So that confession, Jesus is Lord, it, it means something. You guys following thought here? It, it historically, culturally, it, it meant something to say Caesar is Lord. It, Paul is not saying, Hey, if you would repeat after me and say, Jesus is Lord, then you would automatically receive the power of the spell. He is saying okay, that would be putting too little into saving faith. That, that would be easy believism. Just raise your hand, maybe walk down the aisle and leave, leave. Um, but to confess Jesus is Lord is to confess an allegiance to, to him, to his authority, to his, to his, to his dominion. You, does that make sense so far? And to believe that um, he was risen from the dead, that he raised from the dead, is not just to believe that the historical event took place. Oh, let me let me explain something here. Um, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is actually wild. Okay, and so almost all historic there. There's a lot of stupidity that floats around the internet. Um, there's no historian, no historian. Um, employed by a university, upheld uh, in the field as someone of authority uh, who teaches that Jesus was not a legitimate person. Like everyone acknowledges that Jesus existed. He's testified to even in like Roman uh, his, uh, Tacitus, like Roman historians who aren't Christians talk about him. Like he's clearly a person. And then when you start getting down the road, they're, they're becoming more and more historians who say, not only is Jesus clearly a historical figure, his tomb was also empty. Like there, there are a lot of facts that point to this, this truth. And so some historians would say his tomb was empty and the disciples clearly had some kind of post, they call it a post-mortem vision of him. So, so now what we have is historians who don't confess Christ as Lord, but believe that something happened, possibly even a resurrection from the dead, although they would never bow their knee to Jesus. Okay, so it's possible to have an intellectual assent that Jesus, historically speaking, got out of the tomb and to not bow your knee to his glory and lordship and receive him as your 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 love. Okay, and so now when Paul says, believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, it doesn't just mean to believe the historical event, but to believe that the resurrection is God's stamp of vindication that this man who got up from the grave is his only beloved son who will be king forever. Okay, so when Jesus made certain certain claims, like I am God's beloved, he's my father, and then Jesus raised the dead and he healed the sick, and then Jesus said, by the way, I'm going to be crucified, and three days later, I'm going to get up. Jesus places the resurrection now as a kind of 
a, a, a telltale. If I get up from the dead, then you'll know that everything I said about myself is true. God will vindicate me. Like the resurrection is God's seal of approval that this is the Messiah. And so now to believe in my heart that he was raised from the dead is not just to rise to an intellectual ascent concerning the historicity of the event, but it's to believe in my heart that God's stamp of approval, his seal is placed on Jesus Christ, his only son, the resurrected king. He will forever be God's beloved and the, and the Lord of all. Uh, the psalmist said, God did not let his holy one see decay. When Jesus got up from the grave, he became the one, the holy one, who would not see decay. God would not allow his body to, to rot in the tomb. So, so now we talk about putting too little into the content of saving faith. Too little is the, the modern West, uh, raise your hand, write your name down on this card, and you've done it, you've become a Christian. Um, maybe you did. Okay, and so we want to be honest about that. You certainly can come to saving faith and raise your hand and repeat after me without a doubt. It could absolutely take place. But not everyone who just raised their hand and repeated after me actually came to saving faith. Because so many times we just want to rush people into it. Um, and we got to remember we're dealing with souls. Does this make sense? Uh, and so when we think about saving faith now, we have to acknowledge that saving faith is confessing the lordship of Jesus. He is all in all. He's master. He's savior. Uh, and confessing his resurrection, God put his stamp of approval on this man that he is Messiah and King. And, and there I'm confessing an allegiance to him. That, that I'm going to love him and serve him. I, I believe that he is my only hope. And so saving faith is not, I, in Galatians, I receive circumcision or I, or I follow dietary law or I dress a certain way or I'm a member of a church. That's not saving faith. That's works based. Saving faith is also not, I raised my hand and went home and lived however I wanted to live and continued on in my, whatever, pick your sin, pornography or drug addiction or, I went home and cussed my wife out, but I prayed the prayer so I know I'm saved. Um, that's also not saving faith. You did not come under the lordship of Jesus. So Christians, John's going to teach us today, people who have really possessed saving faith, you, you, the, the, real, the real thing, the people who actually belong to Jesus, they are not trying to earn salvation without a doubt. We are not trying to earn anything. We have salvation. But they are also not those who say, Sin really doesn't matter. Just live however you want to live. Your, your lifestyle is not a big deal. They are people who say, I am, I am growing in Christ's likeness. I am, I am striving to please Jesus because I love him so much. I want to please him just because I love him. I fail. I mess up. When I fail, I have forgiveness in the blood of the lamb and I get back up and I keep, keep striving to love Jesus more. There, there is a, a position, there's a posture that says, I have not fully conquered my sin nature, and I freely acknowledge that. I'm not, I struggle with carnal desires. I mess up. But when I mess up, I acknowledge that Jesus is my Lord, so I need to confess, repent, and get back up. And when I do that, he washes me and forgives me, and I just keep moving forward. There's a tension, a position, which the Christian is left in. It's the position of discipleship, of being sanctified, of not there, I'm, I'm not just laying down in sin. I ain't that. I'm also not claiming that I'm perfect. I ain't that. I'm somewhere in the middle, in the process, in the fire. And 
and John's teaching us that only those in the process in the fire are real believers. People that claim, I've got it, I've made it all together, I'm perfect. John says, they're liars. People who claim that you can live however you want to live, have sex with whoever you want to have sex with, drink, whatever, you know, do whatever you want to do, nothing really matters. Fulfill all your carnal desires. Those people are also not Christians. Only the people in the, stuck in the middle saying, I am, I'm learning to be a disciple of Jesus. I'm in the process of growing in discipleship. What, what tells me you are a Christian is when we sit down and talk about pride or anger or frustration, and somewhere in the conversation you say, you know what helped me over the years? I read this book on humility, and it taught me this, and man, that, that really, that really changed me. You know what helped me over the years? I read this book on lust, or I went to this study on lust, or, or, or a mentor taught me this about lust, and this really has helped me over the years. When you start using language like that, this has helped me, then I know you're in the process. I know you're in the fire. Okay, are you guys following me so far? I know I've got some big sweeping thoughts, but this stuff really, really matters. Okay, let me read to you from, from uh, 1 John chapter 2 now. And if you just give me about a minute to remind us of our context, John's writing to house churches in Ephesus. In these house churches in Ephesus, again, he's writing about 90 AD. All the other apostles are already dead. Um, John's very old. All of the other house churches, they've been infiltrated now by what we most likely believe um, would be Gnostic teachers. Gnostic teachers claim to have secret knowledge. That's what uh, gnosis means, knowledge. They claim to have possessed a secret knowledge. That knowledge is that um, everything that is spiritual is good and everything that is matter is evil. They've ascended to this new place of spirituality, in which case, if they um, participated in gluttony or um, if they um, participated in, in an extramarital affair, they're basically saying that everything that happens in my body, my matter existence, that's not really me. So I can fulfill the desires of my body, of my carnal nature, because I am actually an ascended spirit. Um, and so they've, they've built themselves a license to sin in their doctrine. They've called it secret knowledge, and they're teaching that this is what Christianity is. And John, the apostle, has basically said, Let's back up, guys. We need to re-talk about what is Christian? What is the Christian faith? What does it mean to be a participant in Christ? John, in his 80s, maybe a little older, is writing to the churches at Ephesus and saying, no, you you have got to return to the, the foundation of Christian life and Christian faith. And so he's teaching us again, the big premise is, what is Christian? And he's taught us so far, you remember, it is not Christian to say, I walk with God, yet live a life of open darkness. Remember he said, if you say, I walk in the light, yet you live in darkness, John's words, not mine, you're a liar and you don't practice the truth. So John's saying, anyone who says, I'm a Christian, yet they just continue in their sin without any hesitation, without any remorse. Um, there's a big difference in struggling with sin and falling in sin and someone who says, it doesn't really matter, I'm going to do what I want. Anyone who says, it doesn't matter, I'm going to do what I want. John says, don't give them any mind. They're not Christians. He says, anyone who says, I have no sin. I'm perfect. I've, I've attained perfect righteousness. John says, they're not Christians. Only those in the position of leaning into Christ, growing, maturing, ready to confess their shortcomings, their fallings, ready to help others learn more about humility and grace and gratitude 
only those in that in that in between place of I'm not arrived, but I'm also not just laying down. I'm I'm trying to move forward. Those are Christians. Okay, so remember last week he did a bunch of if anyone says they walk in the light yet they live in the darkness, they lie and do not practice the truth. If anyone says they have no sin, they are a liar. If anyone says I have never sinned, they make Jesus a liar. And so he gave us these statements and he said, when people say these things, I want your antennas to go up and I want you to acknowledge that they are false. So in other words, John's teaching the church how to discern. He's giving them some tests to discern people by. If they say these things, uh uh-uh. And so today we transition from if anyone says to John saying, my dear children. So we've We've transitioned the audience. The audience was before was, if anyone, and he kept using the phrase, we heard this from Christ, and we proclaim this to you. So the pronoun we uh, communicated that all of the apostles, all the authority of the apostles was set, was on, the, on the, the weight of their leadership was on these phrases, these discerning tests, if anyone. But then today he transitions to talk to a particular group of people who he calls my dear children. So now we're talking to real Christians. Does that make sense? You guys follow that? Now the audience is, okay, you guys who actually love Jesus in the church, I need you to listen to me here. Okay, let's read. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. My little children. We don't quite have the English to communicate that, the emphasis of that Greek, but it's like my dear children, my beloved children. It's very um, uh, loving. I don't know how else to say that. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. First again, notice the change in audience. We've transitioned to my little children. John, again, uh, most, most teachers believe that John was the youngest disciple, maybe 17, 18 when Jesus called him. He's the last disciple to die. All the other disciples, for the most part, died around 60 AD. So now we have John, uh, very old, in his 80s, maybe in his 90s, writing to the church. And he's writing with the affection of an, of an elderly man, uh, in, the, in the words of one teacher, whose heart has grown softer, not harder, over the years. He's, he's got the grandfather heart, the, the affectionate grandfather heart, and he says, my little ones, my dear children, my beloved. And so there's affection coming forth in the teaching. Does this make sense? John is not teaching with the heart or the posture of arrogance or even trying to establish his dominance. There, this is a, this is loving affection, uh, affectionate teaching, instruction. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, so that you would not sin. The emphasis of the Christian message is God is holy. Uh, the emphasis of the Christian message is Jesus is the epitome of love, of righteousness. 
We have forgiveness in Christ. We are washed, cleansed in Christ. But the point or the purpose of our cleansing was not, and to use a biblical word, licentiousness. Licentiousness means um, that we have a license to do whatever we want. So when Paul is teaching in Romans on the great grace of God that we are totally forgiven in Jesus, absolutely forgiven, perfectly clean, he says in Romans 6, what then should we continue on in our sin? In other words, because we're now clean because of the blood of Jesus, does that mean that we get to fulfill all of our carnal desires and pursue any any want or any longing that we can throw away discipline and, and just get after it? And Paul says, absolutely not. If God so hated sin that Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the price for it, there's no way to say that Christianity is about getting forgiveness so that you can fulfill whatever carnal desire you have. No, John's saying, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. The heart of the Christian says, I hate sin. I don't, I don't, I don't love sin. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we always conquer it, right? Like we struggle, we fail, we wrestle, but we hate it at the end of the day. We love Jesus and hate sin. Anyone who says, I am a Christian, but I don't really care what you have to say about, I don't care what Jesus has to say about, golly, my, my addictions, or I don't care what Jesus has to say about my attitude. I don't care what Jesus has to say about humility. I'm going to do what I want to do. I have forgiveness. They don't understand Christianity at all. So he says, I write this to you so that you would not sin. The Gnostics who say, just do whatever you want because we have forgiveness. John says, they're heretical. I write this to you so that you may not sin. In other words, fight it, resist it, put it to death, grow in your, your discipline to deny your flesh. The Christian life is this active process of helping one another, encouraging one another to kill sin. Agreed? I write this to you so that you do not sin. Then he says, but if anyone does sin, in other words, in this life, we are corporately committed to killing sin. Let's kill sin together. But we all know that over the next two weeks, everyone is going to struggle in some way. And so when you fail, we have an advocate. Now, let's just talk for a second about the language here that John's using. Advocate is actually really interesting. That's the word paraclete that John uses in, in John's gospel to always refer to the Holy Spirit. The idea of advocate in uh, the Greco-Roman world was that when you stood before a court of law, someone came to um, your defense. Someone came to uh, to testify about who you are and about uh, that there should be that you are righteous or that you failed, but the but it wasn't intentional. The the advocate was not in the Greco-Roman world a lawyer. It was not someone employed to defend you. You know, when when you get in trouble with the law, you go pay a lawyer money to stand before the judge and argue your case. An advocate in the Greco-Roman world was someone who loved you and knew you and was going to stand with you in your hardest times. And and that's a, there's a bit of a nuance there. And so Jesus Christ is our advocate when we sin. So when I sin and I stand before the holiness of God, Jesus stands with me. And Jesus testifies to the Father, this one's mine. And, and we're working on some things, right? Like this one's mine. Uh, yes, we got some shortcomings and some failures, but we're working this out, Father. And, and, and Jesus here is called the advocate and the righteous one. Okay. So the righteous one, meaning, uh, 
in the words of Isaiah that Paul echoes in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one in all of humanity has ever lived a righteous life, but the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, the spotless life. He had no failures, no shortcomings, no falling to temptation. He was spotless, man. The righteous one, who is my close friend, stands before the Father with me and says, um, I am the propitiation for the sin. So now we have like three doctrinal words. What just happened to me? Good God. Ooh, hallelujah. Shoo. Um, we have three phrases that just came forward. When we fail, everyone I want you to say, when we fail. Okay, I'm trying to get you back on track. When we fail, we have an advocate who happens to be the righteous one, the only spotless one, who has become the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's a word we don't use too often in our society. But if, in, let's think in, in, um, in the Greek world, if you offended, uh, I don't know, pick your God, you offended a God or you thought that a God wasn't, you weren't in their favor, you would bring them a gift. And that gift was called the propitiation. And so if you brought um, a, a food or a sacrifice or money to the temple, you, the propitiation, the gift, was intended to appease the anger or the wrath of the God. In Judaism, propitiation is um, when, it, when, when um, they come before the Lord with blood sacrifice and they atone for their sins or pay for, a gift is offered to appease or um, cause the frustration or the wrath of God to subside. So now propitiation, Paul Washer, um, I think, said this, that he says that propitiation is probably the most important word in all of the New Testament because propitiation is the solution for the problem that we find ourselves in, in in this. God is wildly holy, totally holy, immaculately holy. He's also fully just, totally just, righteous in all his ways. There is not one of you here who um, imagine this scenario, say that someone breaks into your house tonight and murders your spouse or murders a loved one or even murders your dog, okay? There's not one of you here who would go to court and stand before a judge and your, your, your betrayer, the person who murdered your, your loved one, not one of you would be okay if that judge said, yeah, he did it, but I'm feeling kind today. So we're just going to wipe that away. He's, he can go home. Every one of you would scream and shout and pull your hair out. And we'd make a stinking Netflix documentary about the great injustice of allowing this murderer off the hook. God is even more just than any judge you've ever stood before in the land. So now we have a great problem because you and I are guilty, period. There ain't no denying that. We have an omniscient God who has seen everything start to finish about our lives. He knows your thoughts before they're on your lips. He knows the depths of you and you are guilty. Now you're guilty and he's just. How in the world do we get mercy? And the the wisdom of God is that Jesus Christ becomes our propitiation. The blood of Jesus appeases the justice nature of God so that we can have forgiveness and life. So now what we have, what John just said, is that he's writing to the loved ones, the Christians, to say this. I'm writing to you so that you would not sin. Fight sin. Put sin to death. Corporately together, spur one another on to live holy. Your job is to fight sin. But when you fail, remember, we have an advocate with the Father, a friend who stands with us, who happens to be fully righteous, and the propitiation that appeases God's wrath 
God's justice nature and allows us to stand before him as a son or daughter. But, but notice, guys, notice with me. The Christian position, again, is not, I just lay down the sin and do whatever I want to do. John says, that's not the Christian position. The Christian position is also not, I am totally holy and will never need forgiveness again. God accepts me because I'm just that awesome. That is not the Christian position. And anyone who carries themselves that way, they're, they're, they are liars. They are liars. And we want to be really discerning. Even when there are men and, men or women who lead the church and who teach and preach and carry an aura about them that says, I've got it all together and I'm super spiritual, dynamite spiritual. I've, I am the perfect one. That individual, if we're reading them correctly, they are liars. The Christian leadership that we desire, the ethos of the church is we are in a fight with sin. We're going to fight it. We're going to disciple, train one another, spur one another on. We're going to read books. We're going to do studies. We're going to pray together. We are going to fight with sin. When any of us fall, we're going to look back to the cross and praise God that we have an advocate, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins. That's Christian. So the... Forgive me, I know this, I'm using characters here, stereotypes, I hate that word. Um, the, the typical stereotype Bible Belt Christian, okay, I grew up in the deep south, I get it, who says, my grandma was a member of the Baptist church, and my great-grandma was a member of the Baptist church, and I'm a member of the Baptist church, therefore I'm saved. I repeated after me the prayer 10 years ago, and then I went on living my life however I wanted to live. That's not Christian. Not unless you can look a brother or sister in the faith in the eye and say, I am learning to live like Jesus. I'm not there. Far from it. I fail. Need forgiveness. But when I wake up in the morning, my desire is to love God. My desire is to serve God. So so now from there, we stumble into John's next points. And what he says is that anyone who, who loves God will obey. He says, if you... This is how we know if you know him, if you obey his commandments. Now, now that is a Johannan or a, a typical John thought. John gives us this all in the Gospels that um, Jesus says, if you love me in John's Gospel, if you love me, you will obey me. Jesus does not say, if you love me, you better obey me. He says, you will. It will be natural. It will flow. Obedience will flow out of your heart. You will naturally have a desire to honor Jesus. Christians want to please Jesus. Christians long for the day when they get to look him in the face. Christians really want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Christians want to love Jesus well. Doesn't mean we always succeed in it, but we want it. We want to love Jesus. And so he says, this is how we know if you're really a Christian. If you obey him. If you live a life that wants to obey him. Now, that's not works-based Christianity. He just told us that you've fallen, you failed, and you need propitiation. Okay, so he's not saying you can't be saved unless you, in your past, have obeyed him. He's saying that after you have been saved, the fruit or the product of the new heart, right? When you come to salvation, your heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. There is an event that takes place, a supernatural renewal, revitalization. You're given a new heart and a new soul and new desires. So when you come to real saving faith and you come to the conviction 
that he is the Lord, that his resurrection is God's stamp of approval, that he is the Messiah, the reigning one. When I come to that conviction, the Holy Ghost deposits in me a new heart. A heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. And I don't get the new heart by doing the right things in my past. None of us have done the right things in our past. We are fall so short. But when I get the new heart by just faith, just believing that he is God's chosen Messiah, the product of that new heart is desire to obey Jesus. Does this make sense? I don't, I don't know how to be more clear, clear or like dramatic or how to persuade you that this is the truth, but this has always been Christianity. Easy believism, the raise your hand after me and do whatever you want to do so that you can escape the fires of hell. But that's not, that's not Christianity. Um, it falls short in so many facets. Um, but, but neither is, hey, you can't be a Christian unless you perform perfectly, unless you've jumped through all my hoops, unless you dress like me. That's not Christian. That's not even close. So there's a danger on both sides. Agreed? Okay. So where I want us to, to start to wind down here, Emma, you can go ahead and come for me. Um, where I want us to start to wind down is this. He says that if we live lives that want to obey God, that love will be perfected in us. Okay, that's like a sigh of relief because he doesn't say, um, cross your fingers that love will be perfected in you. He doesn't say, um, if you are awesome and really gracious and kind, love will be perfected in you. He just says, those who are Christians, love is being perfected in them. Okay, so now we kind of, we've got to roll around a couple things. Being Christian is coming to the table and saying, we kill sin. We want to die to sin. We don't want to live in sin. It's also saying when we sin, we're going to confess it and receive forgiveness and move on. Get up and get back in the fire and keep changing and growing. So Christianity is at its base a commitment to discipleship. Does that make sense? I haven't arrived yet. Not workspace. I haven't arrived yet. Therefore, I need to grow. I can't just lay down in my sin. I can't just roll around in it. Therefore, I need to grow. Discipleship and sanctification are are in many ways the same thing. In some ways, discipleship and sanctification or the process of becoming holy are, are totally interlocked. And so if we come to true Christian confession that I am not perfect, I didn't earn my salvation, I didn't achieve greatness before God, I am totally dependent upon grace. Saving faith is not just raising my hand, but it's believing that Christ Jesus is Lord if we come to that true Christian confession, the only place to lie is in discipleship. The only place to exist is in the posture, I've not arrived. It's, it's to be able to say, I'm not who I was, but I'm not who I'm going to be. And in the in-between, I need you to help me get there. In the in-between, the Holy Spirit is perfecting me in love. Now, I want to say just a few more things as we wind down. The fruit or the end goal of sanctification, the end goal of discipleship, of the process that we're in, that you're in and I'm in. If you're a Christian, you're in the process of discipleship. The process is not just about learning to stop sinning. Um, We were praying through this this morning. That's absolutely true. In the process, we learn to stop sinning. But we're exchanging a life of sin for a life of joy and peace and hope and perfect love in Christ. 
And so the end goal of discipleship is not just that I get to poke my chest out and say, I don't struggle with that sin like my neighbor does. It's not that I get to poke my chest out and say, I'm spiritual and more moral than everyone else. Christians never poke their chest out and say, look how moral I am. We poke our chest out and say, thank God for grace. And the desire, what's the end goal, what's happening in me is not that I'm just learning to to not sin anymore, although that's definitely a part of it, but it's to acknowledge that sin is loveless. Okay, this this is a Pauline doctrine. This is a Paul idea, Romans 13. Sin is the antithesis of love. Two, um, if I have an affair on my wife, I may fulfill a carnal desire or pursue lust. The, the causal effect of me having an affair is spitting on my wife, right? Like that's agreed upon. The, the causal reaction, if I say, uh, you know, I don't really want to dad anymore. Dadding is hard. Which by God, it is. If I say, you know what, I want to take three weeks off and go, you know, live on an island somewhere and y'all can fend for yourself. The causal effect of me fulfilling that carnal desire is my children feeling rejection and a lack of love. So again, this is just basic Christianity. Holiness is not just sinlessness. Holiness is a manifestation of perfect love. Okay? And so what we're striving for, what we're growing into, is not just trying to not be who we used to be, but we are growing into Jesusness. And, and as we grow into Jesus likeness, what we're receiving is a greater manifestation of peace and joy and life and love. And my heart, like I'm not going to, I, I don't want to have an affair with my wife because I want to love her well. And we don't want to participate in whatever addiction or struggle or anger or bitterness or gossip because we want to love Jesus well. And when we grow in holiness, I'm growing in a state of peace and joy and rest and love. And that's the beauty of the Christian faith. That that we can actually shed off not only our sin and our brokenness, but we can shed off our lack of peace and our lack of rest and our lack of love for one another. And we can become fully baptized in the character, the peace, the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus.